Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 47 this morning. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day morning, and we are uh, picking up at Genesis 47, beginning in verse 28. And we're going to read down through chapter 48 to the end of the chapter to verse 22. Genesis 47, 28 through 48:22, and you'll find that on page 41 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. We have come to that point in the Genesis narrative where Jacob has been reconciled to his long-lost son Joseph. Joseph has brought now the whole covenant family, the whole church into a foreign land, and they've received that special place in Goshen. They have been blessed, and they have subsequently become a blessing even to the Egyptians. And now as Jacob is preparing to die, and as we have seen that Jacob has been reflecting on the difficulty of his life, and he's been reflecting on the trials that he's faced and all of the hardships that he's had, we now come to Genesis 48, and we read in verse 28, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will give you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them. And embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near before him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head 
of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it has become common in our day to hear people talk about leaving a legacy behind them. If you ever watch conservative news, especially from the hours of 5 to 9 p.m., you will see commercials in which they are trying to encourage the elderly to leave a legacy behind them. That has become a very common theme, and it's something that captures the minds of most people as they age. They begin to think about their life. They begin to think about their uh, successes and their failures. They begin to think about their children. They begin to think about their grandchildren. They begin to think about what will the legacy be that I leave behind. Sometimes it's the legacy of a name to a grandchild or a great-grandchild. Oftentimes it is the legacy of whatever possessions one has amassed. And yet, as we consider the idea of leaving a legacy behind, it, it becomes important for us to come to terms with the fact that the Bible has an enormous amount to say about what sort of legacy we are going to leave to our children and our grandchildren. And here in Genesis, as we near the end of this narrative, as we come to the, the ultimate climax of God's dealing with his covenant people, we see as, J, as Joseph, the I'm sorry, as Jacob, the head of the covenant now, standing in the place of Abraham and his father Isaac, he is coming to the end of his life and he is preparing. He is preparing to depart from this world. And what we see both in uh, chapter 48 and then on into chapter 49 is the way that the believer approaches the idea of leaving a legacy. Now, it's very interesting, the uh, the overarching theme in these two chapters could be summarized in this proposition. Believers leave a legacy that is antithetical to the legacy that everyone in the world seeks to leave behind them because believers die in faith. Now, we have seen that Jacob has been a man who has been pressed by hardship. He's had a difficult life. This is Jacob who, who has said things like, everything is against me. 
This is Jacob who said to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life. They haven't even been what my father's lives have been. And in that, what we saw was that Jacob was preparing to die. Jacob understood that his time was running out. He understood that time as an ever rolling stream was carrying his life away. And Jacob understood that he didn't have long. Now he'd, have his, he'd had his hopes fulfilled. He'd seen Joseph, who he never thought he would see again. The son that he assumed for 20-something years had been dead, and now God had reconciled him. He had been brought together. The family had been reconciled and restored. They had been given a special place in the land of plenty, and they had been blessed with all of God's blessings. And yet, Jacob doesn't rest content in that. He prepares for death. And as he prepares for death and he reflects on the trials of his life, you get a sense that at the end of chapter 47 through verse 27, that Jacob thinks his death is imminent. You get get the sense that Jacob thinks he'll die at any time now. And notice that we're told there in verse 28, Jacob lived... In the land of Egypt, 17 years. It's, it's actually not an insignificant detail. What Moses is telling us is that Jacob received strength as he prepared himself to die because now he is strengthening himself in faith at the end of his life. It's one of the most marvelous little details in the scripture that God is sustaining and extending Jacob's life even as Jacob is committing himself to the Lord and preparing to die the death of faith. You know, there's that great clause in Hebrews chapter 11, after going through the whole gambit of the Old Testament hall of faith and all these figures, many of whom we've looked at in this book, and, and it says, these all died in faith. That, that cannot be said of everyone. These all died in faith. That cannot be said of everyone. In fact, that can be said of very few people, but it is said of believers They lived in faith, and they died in faith. The Puritans were fond of saying things like, a man is only so much at his death what he was in his life. If we live by faith, we prepare to die by faith. And only those who live by faith will prepare to die by faith when that time comes, and Jacob is preparing. And here's one of the most remarkable things about it. You would expect in Hebrews chapter 11, in that great hall of faith, You would expect, when Jacob is introduced, you would expect the writer of Hebrews to say, by faith he wrestled with God. Remember, he was still a fairly young man. He was in his 40s, probably, when God appeared to him at Bethel. And he wrestled with God. That's where he got the blessing. That was the moment of conversion. He would not let the Lord go. Jesus appeared to Jacob that night, and he wrestled. And he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And you would expect the writer of Hebrews, to look back at that narrative and to say, by faith, he wrestled with God. But he doesn't. The only thing the writer of Hebrews tells us about Jacob is that he dwelt in tents with his grandfather and his father, not knowing where he was going. And the other thing the writer of Hebrews tells us is by faith, Jacob, when his time came to die, he leaned over his staff and he blessed the sons of Joseph. This is what the writer of Hebrews sees. This is the great act of faith. It is not the conquering of kingdoms. It is not the establishing of a great namesake. It is dying the death 
of faith. It is looking at death. It is looking back at the totality of his life. It is looking forward at his sons and his grandsons. It is taking God's promises and all of that working together. Jacob now leans over his staff and he pronounces this divine blessing on his grandsons. And that, my friends, is what the Holy Spirit singles out as the great act of faith in Jacob's life. We're going to look this morning at this dying faith and this exhibition of this dying faith, and we want to consider Jacob's recognition of God's grace to him formerly in his past life, Jacob's recognition of God's grace to him currently as he is here preparing to die, and and Jacob's recognition of God's grace for the future, the past, the present, and the future. Well, notice he has called Joseph to himself. No doubt he's called him because he knows that his time is short. He doesn't know that he has 17 years. He, he, makes, he makes Joseph swear to him that he will bring his bones up from Egypt to the promised land. We'll come back to that when we talk about the future blessing. But now as, as Joseph is before dying and aged and blind, Jacob, and, and as all of these scenes begin to unfold at the end of Jacob's life, we're told that, that uh, Joseph was told that his father was ill, so he took his two sons and he went to Jacob. And, and notice verse 2, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Now, um, this, again, is not an insignificant detail. It, it could have been very easy for Jacob to just say, I need to rest. I'm sick, but, but he realized this is an important moment for him. This is perhaps the last moment he will have to show his family what it looks like to be a true believer. This is the last moment that he has to live in faith. And so he summoned up his strength, and he sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, verse 3, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Now, why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, remember, Joseph has grown up the better part of his life in Egypt. He has, he has been away from his father. He has been away from the family. He has been away from family worship. He has been away from the scriptures, so to speak. He has been away from the nurture of the Christian home. He has been away from God dealing immediately with his family. And he has, he has married his own wife in Egypt. He has raised two of his sons in Egypt. He has been a foreigner and he has been living away. And now as Jacob brings him back, he is essentially saying, my son, let me tell you of God's goodness to me in the past. He is giving a running summary of his life to his long-lost son. And here's what he says to him. God appeared to me. He essentially says, God had mercy on me. God changed my heart. God converted me. The most important thing you need to know, my son, about me is that God appeared to me. By the way, that is the most important part of our legacy to our children is that we have had an experience with the living God and that we can say that he's changed our heart. If we don't have that, we have nothing. None of this will make any sense. Um, The dying of the death of faith and the leaving of a legacy of faith to our children and our grandchildren is dependent on us having experienced a revelation of God to us personally 
a revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice that, that, that Jacob says, God appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will make of you a company of people. I will give you this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. Now, Jacob is essentially saying to his son that God remembered his covenant promises to your great-great-grandfather and your grandfather and now to me, your father. He is the faithful covenant-keeping Lord. What Jacob is saying to Joseph is God is the faithful covenant-keeping Lord. The most important thing you could say to your children and grandchildren is Jesus is the faithful covenant-keeping Lord. It's the most important thing you can say. That is the greatest part of our legacy is that we tell our children God is the faithful covenant-making and covenant-keeping Lord. God will do as he has said. God has guaranteed in his word. And it's, it's important for us to see, John Calvin makes a huge point here, that what Jacob is alluding to is to the word of God. He's, he's saying to his son, God has spoken. He's given his promises. This is it. My son, God has given his promises to me and to us. And notice that as he continues to reflect on the past and he continues to think about those past events, he now alludes in verse 7 to the death of Rachel. Now, why, why allude to Rachel? It doesn't seem like it fits in this account. He says in verse 7, As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. What, that seems like an out-of-place detail. It doesn't make sense. He doesn't mention Leah. He doesn't mention any of the other experiences. And I think the answer is because he is speaking to Joseph, who is the son of Rachel. Remember, Joseph is the firstborn son of Rachel. And what Jacob is essentially doing, and you have to listen carefully here, Jacob is trying to stir up in Joseph a desire to leave all of the riches of Egypt to follow Christ. And he's doing so by the example of his own mother. Jacob has essentially said, my son, your mother and I left everything to follow Christ. Your mother died on the way. She didn't live her life for her bank account. She didn't. She died on the way. It's a very powerful thing. What he's saying to Joseph is, Joseph, you have had all the luxuries of Egypt. You're the second most powerful man in the world. How hard it is to let go of those things. But remember the example of your mother. She picked up the tent, left her father, not an insignificant thing in those days, left the security of Laban, her father, not an insignificant thing, left everything she knew, and she said, Jacob, I will go with you. I will pick up the tent with you. I will go not knowing where we're going. I will follow you where you lead. I will go, and I will die on the way. She died in faith. And Jacob was saying to Joseph, your mother was the example of one who lived and died by faith. Now, some of us have had godly parents, some who have lived and died by faith. Very powerful example, very rare example. Some of you have not had that example. But all of us are called to exhibit that example. You know, I think if there's any application that's clear here, it's we should look at this and we should say, I want to live and die like Jacob. I want my children to be able to hear your mother and I followed Christ even when it cost us. We should want our children to hear we didn't cling to the things of this world, we clung to Christ. And you know what? Your mother died on the way. 
and she died in faith, and she's with Christ in glory. And what Jacob is doing with Joseph is he's doing the same thing that we read about with Moses, where we're told that Moses did not esteem the riches of Egypt greater than the riches of Christ. That, that Jacob is trying to say, my son, the riches of Jesus are better than all the things that you have. He doesn't know how much Joseph's heart may have clung to the things in Egypt. He doesn't know how much Joseph's son's hearts may be clinging to the luxuries and all of the things that God has given them in Egypt. And so he is stirring up by way of past remembrance, God's faithfulness, God's mercy, and the example of walking by faith in light of those promises. And then notice when Joseph brings his sons to him. And notice what he does when he goes to bless him. He says in verse 15, he blesses Joseph and he says, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd. You see what he's doing? He's saying there is one God. There is one covenant Lord. There is one way of salvation. There is one religion. It is the Christian religion. It is the promises of God. The God of my father Abraham and my father Isaac. Now your God. And notice Jacob claims him as my God. He doesn't say the God. He says my God. By the way, the Christian faith must be a faith of my God, not the God of the Bible or, yeah, yeah, that God, but my God, the God of Abraham, my father, the God of Isaac. He is my God. My fathers walked before him. He was their God. He has been my shepherd. Notice that. Notice all the personal pronouns in 15 and 16. My shepherd. Notice this. He has redeemed me from all evil. So you see that Joseph, Jacob is appealing to the past. And he is reflecting on God's mercy and grace to him in former days. Um, Secondly, he is reflecting on God's faithfulness at present. And he's reflecting on the grace of God to him at present. Notice what he says to Joseph there in verse 15 and 16 again, after appealing to God as the God of Abraham and Isaac. And notice he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Now, why is this remarkable? Why is that remarkable statement? That is a remarkable statement because, number one, Jacob is blind and he can't see with his physical sight, but he is seeing 2020 vision spiritually with the eyes of faith. He has 2020 vision now. This is Jacob, who through the better part of his life seemed to have blurred or blinded vision about whether God was for him and whether God was at work in his life. Remember, this is Jacob who bemoaned his days, who said, everything is against me. This is Jacob who said, few and evil are the days of my life. This is Jacob who couldn't see God's hands so often for long periods, even decades of his life. He could not see God's hand. And now at the end of his life, he sees perfectly with the eyes of faith. He says, the God who has shepherded me. That's an enormous statement if you're a shepherd. These are shepherds. They get what that means, the constant care, the constant oversight, the constant attention, the constant feeding, the constant protecting, the constant going out after, the constant oversight. And what Jacob is saying to his son is that every second of every day of my life since God appeared to me, he has been shepherding me perfectly. That's a powerful testimony of faith. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, 
He was there at certain points helping me out. He doesn't say, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was there. He helped me out here and there like I needed it. He said, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Do you see that? He sees God's hand actively at work. He says the angel, and there he's referring to Christ, the messenger of the covenant. Not an angel, but a messenger, the mediator between God and man who has redeemed me from all evil. And he is calling on him presently to bless his offspring. I think there's a word there for us. You know, um, Jonathan Edwards has a sermon uh, and, and has a resolution in one of his famous resolutions not to live a day of his life without thinking about his death because none of us are guaranteed a long life. There's no guarantee. This is not meant for us to read um, and to think, well, I'll get to this in 20, 30 years. I, mean, I, have, I have heard numerous people in churches, in PCA churches, Reformed churches, say, yeah, you know, I'm 50 now, but I'm thinking when I'm 70, 80, I'll be doing this. You should never think like that, ever. You should never think like that. To think like that is to think in unbelief. Because who knows what a day may bring. God isn't guaranteed a second of life more for us. And that means as we think upon our own deaths and our whole life is a life of faith in light of our, our impending deaths, that we are to be thinking about how God has redeemed us and cared for us and shepherds us. We should be thinking about his present mercies. We should be thinking about present forgiveness. We should be thinking about our present need to worship him. We should be thinking about his present work of restoring us. We should be thinking about our need for his present work in our marriages and in our children's lives and in our grandchildren's lives and in every aspect of our lives. That's what Jacob is doing. He's just gotten 17 more years. He doesn't know he could have 17 more. But he is on that brink where he is living by faith, yes, in the past mercies of God, but also in the present mercies of God. And then finally, he is reminiscing on the future grace and mercy of God. Now, in order for us to understand the importance of this, we have to understand a few things about where Jacob is and how this would have sounded if you were there. Remember, there's a famine, and they're not in the promised land. They're not in the place that God promised to give them. They're in a foreign land. They're away from any tangible, visible evidence of God's blessing. They are strangers in a foreign land. And, and now Jacob on his deathbed does something remarkable. He, he orchestrates an adoption ceremony in order to adopt the two sons of Joseph as if they were his own sons, he says. And as he does this adoption ceremony, and it's just like a wedding ceremony where the minister says, who gives this bride to this man? And he says to, he says to Jacob, whose sons are these? He knows whose sons they are. And he says, these are my sons that the Lord has given me. And as he orchestrates and officiates this, this adoption ceremony, we start to see that Jacob is now dying the death of faith in dependence on God's future promises of grace. This is, this is, by the way, where the rubber meets the road. Because it's actually quite easy to look back and to say, 
God was faithful to me there. I saw how God was at work there. I remember those times where he met with me there. And it's actually not all that difficult to say God is shepherding me right now. Only by faith. But those are the easier parts. And this is the harder part of dying in faith. Here, Jacob, away from all the tangible signs, calls those two grandsons to him. And he begins to confer a blessing on them. Uh, Calvin, as he reflects, John Calvin, as he reflects on the ceremony and what these boys, who probably would have been in their later teenage years or even young adulthood, um, Joseph's 57 in this chapter. Uh, they're not probably not little boys, but as these perhaps teenage boys are brought, Calvin says, by all human standards, what Jacob says here should have looked ludicrous. He said, because he's telling them God's going to give them possession of the land when he doesn't even have possession of the land. It would be a little bit like me not having any money in my bank account, which is true, and, and saying to my children, sons, your dad, God is going to give you everything that your dad has. <laughs> and they're going to be like, great, big deal, dad. That's, that's why Calvin says that should be ludicrous. It's like promising somebody something that you don't possess. That's what he's doing. He's promising to bless them and he's calling God to bless them and God has sent him to bless them with something that he himself doesn't yet possess. That's the remarkable thing about this chapter. He is, he is walking by faith. He is dying by faith. He has no evidence. There's no evidence that he's going to get it. Nothing. There's no show me this. Let me see the title deed. Let me see this. There's none of that. There's nothing. There's God's word. That's it. There's God's word. What does it mean to die in faith? You take God at his word. That's what it means to die in faith. You cast yourself on Christ and you say, even though I am not yet the possessor of heaven and earth, even though I do not yet possess the everlasting inheritance, God has promised, and that promise is sure in Christ, and I am going to go into the darkness of the unknown of death I will, I, will, I will allow myself to enter through that last great enemy and I will hold fast to the promises and I will declare them to a generation to come. That's, that's what Jacob is doing. Now, there are more sort of nuggets tucked away in this chapter because there's the whole hand-crossing incident. And what's that about? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Remember... Remember when Jacob got the blessing? Remember his father Isaac was, was blind? Do you remember that? His father was blind. Now he's blind. And remember, he went in and he deceived his father for the birthright. And the younger received the birthright rather than the older because that was God's way of electing grace. Well, here you have the same thing, but here you have the blind Jacob consciously, probably because God had revealed it to him in some way, pronouncing this divine blessing not on the older son preeminently, but on the younger son of Joseph. He is taking these two boys to himself in the place of Reuben. Remember, Reuben was his firstborn, but Reuben lay with 
one of his wives. And remember Simeon and Levi, remember what they had done. They had acted uh, violently and wickedly toward the Shechemites. They had, they had uh, massacred the Shechemites for what they did to their sister. And remember Judah, Judah the fourthborn. You would think that he was the one that would receive the covenant blessings. Why are the sons of Joseph receiving the covenant blessings and not uh, Reuben or Simeon or Levi or Judah? Remember Judah had gone into Tamar and had acted wickedly and and in a sense, God was shoving aside Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah, and he was putting Ephraim and Manasseh in their place, and especially Ephraim. And that becomes important because as you go through the rest of the Old Testament, as you read the prophets, and no, no doubt you have been reading the prophets, and you have stumbled across God calling Israel and that northern kingdom Ephraim, and you've wondered why. Why does he call them Ephraim? Why does he say in Hosea 11, O Ephraim, I love you. I, I taught you how to walk. Why does he use the name Ephraim? He does it because of this blessing. Because God had said that Ephraim would be blessed, and that while you almost never find the name Jacob through the rest of the scriptures, except on a few rare occasions, the name Ephraim, takes central place because he is the heir. It's the name of God's adopting inheritance portion for his people. And it means that we should value the saving adoption that we have in Jesus Christ more than everything. Because the same adoption that Ephraim receives here in the physical realm is a picture of the adoption that we have into God's family through the everlasting son, Jesus. Now, that's what's happening. Why the crossing of the hands? Well, the theology of scripture is a hand-crossing theology. The theology of scripture is a hand-crossing theology. Um, while Manasseh is not cursed, there is a sense where you can see in the crossing of the hands the blessing is being transferred from one to the other. And Ephraim is receiving a blessing he didn't deserve. Joel Beakey has put it so well, he said at the cross, God the Father put one hand on Jesus, and he put one hand on you if you're a believer, and he transferred your sin to Jesus, and he transfers his blessing to you. The Bible has hand-crossing theology. That's the point of the scriptures. He has put his hand on Jesus, who is the son, the firstborn who deserved the inheritance. And he has said, my son, you will bear the curse for your people. And he has taken his other hand, he's put it on you, and said, even though you deserve none of the blessing, you are going to get all the blessing and all the adopting grace and all the mercy and all the kindness, and you're going to be part of my everlasting family, and I'm going to give you a new name, and your name is going to be synonymous with blessing. That's the gospel. Now there's... Another thing I would be remiss if I didn't point out, and that is that Jacob is giving this blessing with his hands. Remember, as we've been in the story of Jacob, that Jacob has done almost nothing good with those hands. Remember, coming out of the womb, it was the same hands that he's now crossing on his grandsons, giving this blessing by faith. It was those same hands that had supplanted his brother. It was those same hands that had stirred the soup to deceive his father. It was the same hands that had reached out to his father in order to steal the blessing. It was those hands that he had received the bloody coat of Joseph. No blessing, no goodness, no bounty. 
But it was those hands, remember, we said this, it was those hands that wrestled with Christ at Bethel and obtained the blessing. And now at the end of his life, because God had filled Jacob's hands with blessing, Jacob could in turn pour that blessing out symbolically on his sons and on his grandsons. You know, all of this is moving to the death of Jesus. And I'm sure many of us have never thought about this, that, you know, Jesus actually thought long and hard about leaving a legacy. I know we tend not to think of Jesus that way. We tend to think of ourselves that way. But, But Jesus actually reveals to us in the scriptures that he cared deeply about what legacy he left to his children, to his people. Remember, he calls... He calls his disciples little children. These are, he stands, as it were, as a spiritual father to his people, the redeemer. He is the father of his people. And Jonathan Edwards has this remarkable insight where he is meditating on this dying benediction of Jacob to his son and his grandsons. And notice that, that Jacob says at the very end, after blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, notice verse 21 toward the end of the chapter. Notice this. Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Don't miss that. He says, I am about to die, but God will be with you. And Edward says, as Jesus is approaching the cross, in John chapter 13, he says, I go, I go to my father. I'm about to die. Where I'm going, you cannot come. But God is going to be with you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And I'm going to give you my love and my joy and my peace, and my blessing, and my provision, and you're going to have the entire fullness of God's blessing. And what Jesus essentially does is put one hand on himself and one on his people, and he says, because of what I'm about to do, all of the fullness of God's blessing is going to be yours. That's what Jacob is typifying. Now, I want to ask us as we close a few questions. One do you think of your death and, and do you think about what, what sort of legacy will be left? What will people say? What will they say about you? What will they say that was a man that lived in faith and died by faith? Yes, he or she had many sins and many struggles and many blemishes and many imperfections like Jacob. But will people say that person left a legacy of faith and I want to leave a legacy of faith like them? That's the most important thing. You get one life. Get one life. That's it. You don't get to do this twice. You don't get to do this twice. This is it. I really want to press that in. The clock is ticking. Time like an ever-rolling stream. We get one life. And what we do now will either matter for eternity and will leave a residual blessing on generations to come or will be like chaff that's just blown away. If, if, if I could press one thing in us this morning, and, and starting with myself, it would be this. Don't walk out of this building and forget these things and just go on with the humdrum of your life trying to lay up possessions for yourself and your kids. You know what the Bible says about the rich? They leave their lands. They name their lands after themselves. They leave them to their kids. They think they're going to go on forever. They don't. They won't. But a legacy of faith will continue. It passes 
through two generations in this chapter. Isn't that amazing? And now it passes on to us so many thousands of years later. Jacob's legacy is continuing to bear fruit because he lived by faith and he died by faith. I want to press home to you also uh, the importance of us living by faith and preparing to die by faith even when we don't seem to have any tangible signs of God's blessing in our lives at the moment. Now, Jacob saw past it. He didn't, there was nothing about being in Egypt that should have made him think, God is blessing me. But, but he realized that God was with him. He realized God had brought him to that place. And you know what? Uh, there's a little book by a, uh, a medieval monk, Brother Lawrence, about um, practicing the presence of God. And, and, and he talks in it, it's, it's not a theologically accurate book in many levels, but he talks in it about wanting to wash the dishes in the presence of God. That's theologically accurate. And I want to ask you this morning, in the here and the now, are you practicing the presence of God? As Jacob was saying, the shepherd who has shepherded me all my life, even to this day, the God who has redeemed me from all evil, the Christ who has rescued me and delivered me, he is with me. He will be with my children. And then finally, and I want to I want to press this home. It doesn't matter if your children are two or twenty-two or forty-two or sixty-two. Um, a, a, an individual living by faith and preparing to die by faith cares deeply about the faith of the next generation. That should be the singular desire of your heart. Are my children? Are my grandchildren? Are their grandchildren? Are their grandchildren? Are they going to know Jesus, or are they going to perish? That should be that. That's it. That should be an all-encompassing, all-pervasive thought for us. And here's the glorious thought: It's not dependent on you ultimately. It's dependent on you trusting the Lord for that. Isn't that wonderful? God is the one who blessed Ephraim. God is the one who gave His grace to the undeserved. God is the one who redeems his people, and yet we are called to live by faith and hope in faith and die by faith, looking for that city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we are humbled over how much sin there is in our own lives and how much our lives are perhaps not marked by living in faith and preparing to die by faith. And so we pray, our God, that you would stir us up by way of reminder this morning, that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, who left that blessing as he went from his disciples to the cross, who promised the presence of God to us, who secured that, who, who merited the blessings for us. We pray, our God, that you would stir us up to, to fix our eyes on him and to commit ourselves to living by faith and preparing to die in faith. And so, our God, we pray that you would do this for us as a congregation, that not one in this place would leave here despising these things or forgetting these things or being indifferent to them. We pray that you would give us a renewed zeal and desire to commit ourselves to live by faith in preparation to die by faith. We pray, our God, that you would give us the grace to do this by your Holy Spirit and by the scriptures and by your promises. And we thank you, our God, that you give us everything in the scriptures necessary for life and godliness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.